Studio 360 is supported by Sotheby's Institute of Art, the Graduate School of Art and its Markets, offering master's degrees and public programs for aspiring art world professionals at their campuses in New York, Los Angeles, London, and online. Sotheby'sInstitute.com And by Lumosity.com Introducing a 10-minute fit test to challenge memory, attention, and problem-solving with brain games to calculate baseline scores and build a personalized brain training program. Performance can be compared to global averages. Learn more at Lumosity.com. Today in Studio 360, one of the big movies of the season is a World War II thriller about a codebreaker. The Americans, the Russians, the French, the Germans, everyone thinks Enigma is unbreakable. Good. Let me try, and we'll know for sure, won't we? But just who was the real Alan Turing? Did you know that the man who secretly invented the computer was gay and no one knows because he was persecuted by the government after the war? We'll look into the myth and reality of the original computer genius, Alan Turing. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm speaking to you from a typical American home in Hyannisport, Massachusetts. Also, we'll listen to the album that helped launch the modern age of political comedy. After uh, two years of brushing with the Crest toothpaste, our group had uh, 21% fewer cavities with Crest. I'm Kurt Anderson. That and much more is ahead this hour in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC. But first, that is the sound of protesters in Mexico City this month demonstrating against government collusion with drug cartels, including the slaughter of 43 student protesters recently. Drug violence and drug culture are everywhere in Mexico. That's the band Los Tigres del Norte playing Contrabando y Traición, Contraband and Betrayal. In 1973, that was the first big hit in the Mexican pop musical genre called Narco Corrido, songs that tell the stories of Mexico's drug traffickers. Forty years later, Narco Corridos are everywhere in Mexico and on Spanish-language radio in the United States. But in the meantime, the drug cartels the Corridos glorify have become increasingly powerful and violent, the fact driving Mexican politics and life and culture. My guest today, Carolina Miranda, writes for the Los Angeles Times, including a recent article asking whether it might be time to shame and retire some of the gang outlaw music. Carolina Miranda, welcome back to Studio 360. Thank you for having me, Kurt. So how did Narco Corridos start? This isn't uh, a new phenomenon, right? No. I mean, the, the, the whole idea of a ballad that tells a story is as old as Mexican music itself. And there's evidence of some of the first Narco Corridos coming up in the 1930s when you had a song called For Morphine and Cocaine and it was a story about cross-border smuggling between the U.S. and Mexico. So it's definitely not new. I, th- I think what, what is significant, what you have seen uh, appear in, in the last few years are these extremely violent narco corridos. Narco corridos that don't tell necessarily these cinematic poetic stories about smuggling the way Los Tigres do, but really focus on the violence. They're about chopping heads off. They're about killing. The singers carry bazookas. It is as hyper-violent as violence can get. Here is a clip from one of the hyper violent songs you're talking about. This is El Commander singing El Tachycardio, the rapid heartbeat, about the glories of the drug trade, and it's a current huge hit. 
Agarra la borrachera, tan entregan zonas tontas para gustarlas de de veras. Que no falte el aditivo, saben que soy cocaíno, la mandíbula. I listened to that song for the first time last night, by the way, on Spotify. It's, so it's everywhere. And these more extreme corridos mostly come from a production team that's based in the United States, right? Uh, yeah, absolutely. It's a group called the Twins Group, and they're based in Burbank. But there is a lot of cross-border exchange. You know, they're reading these narco blogs. They, you know, they sometimes take commissions from gangsters, from people who smuggle drugs. Really? So they're, yeah. they, they are not just showbiz people creating illusions. They are actually sometimes involved with the cartels? Exactly. Some of the songwriters, I don't want to imply that sure. everyone is doing this, but there is this very direct connection. And it's a culture that to some degree is being supported by the U.S. I mean, as you said, you can hear these songs on Spotify. You can also buy them at Walmart. So upwards of 10,000 Mexicans a year are dying in these drug cartel wars. The impact on lives beyond that is is incalculable. So why are these songs so popular? Well, I think, you know, there's a little bit of the underdog, the outlaw rebel. I mean, you know, this is a figure we celebrate in our own culture. If you think about, you know, Tony Soprano or Clint Eastwood in every Bonnie Western. And Clyde, yeah. What's the difference between a narco corrido by an alterado artist, as we call this new tendency, and gangster rap of the, of the 1990s in the United States? It's a good parallel. You know, the direct links, the fact that some of these songwriters do take commissions from the cartels probably sets it apart. Yeah. You know, I don't think NWA was taking commissions from <laughs> from street gangs in L.A. Well, at the time. And, and, and also the ghetto drug dealers that were being arguably glorified and celebrated uh, by that music did not control the American government at every level. Exactly, exactly. I mean, this is, I mean, one of the things that the students were protesting in Mexico was really this idea of the narco state, of narcos having, occupying every level of society. And I feel that, you know, this alterado culture, it's, it almost has become propaganda for that state. So what should happen in your view, in your ideal world, the legitimate industries that are profiting from this thing should ratchet it back? I think the music really to some degree is a symptom of a much larger problem and the culture is a reflection of that. Um, all of that said, you know, I'm also a journalist and a big believer in free speech. But at the same time, I think that we as consumers of culture can take a step back and, and think about what we're buying, what we're listening to and what we're celebrating with every time, you know, we hit play on, on our iTunes. Carolina Miranda, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. So, what do you think? Should Mexican artists and the entertainment industry draw some lines here? Does pop culture ever bear responsibility for inciting real-life violence? Tell us what you think at Studio360.org. A month ago on the show, I talked with the great cartoonist and newly minted MacArthur genius, Alison Bechtel, and I roped her into our latest listener challenge, which we called the Great Studio 360 Doodle Dare. Alison started a drawing of a disconcerted young woman grasping at some unseen something, and we asked you to complete the picture. 
More than 200 of you listeners took us up on that challenge, putting Allison's character in every imaginable situation, fighting spaghetti, hitching a ride on a dragonfly. One of you even drew her hanging off Iggy Azalea's backside. Allison Bechtel is back here with me now to reveal the winner. Winners, actually. Allison, welcome back to Studio 360. Hi, Kurt. Thanks. So, how did you feel about the caliber, variety, whatever of the entries overall? And be honest. <laughs> well, I was amazed at how many submissions there were. I had no idea how much work this was going to be. <laughs> Sorry. There was a lot of drawings to look at. We'll get to your winner in a minute. But first, let's talk about one of your runners-up. Who is your first one? Ian from Woodside is my first runner-up. And he did a wonderful collage with an Albrecht Dürer woodcut of Samson rending the lion. He somehow fit the drawing into this woodcut really seamlessly, like almost like she's part of the original Dürer drawing. The woman is standing on the lion's tail. She's grabbing Samson's head with one hand and his back with the other hand. And, and her grip kind of mirrors the way he's grabbing the lion in front of him. So I just thought that was really synchronicitous and brilliant. It was. And it made me imagine a whole comic book or animated film of this modern girl suddenly cast back into the Middle Ages. <laughs> yeah, that would be great. Well, let's get to the winner. Who is she, and uh, what did she draw? Her name is Carolita Johnson, and she drew a woman clinging to the top of a cliff, looking down over the cliff at her small dog, who clearly has just, like, rolled over the cliff and landed on a a branch. This little dog, like Toto and mm-hmm. uh, The Wizard of Oz, mm-hmm. and there's, like, this raging ocean far down below. It's very dramatic. So what made you pick this one among the 200-plus entries? When I read Carolita's explanation, she described that this was a, an actual thing that happened to her. She had a little dog that was rolling around on a cliff, and the dog went over. So it was exciting to me, I guess maybe because I like to write about my own life, to see someone turn this into a real scene from their own life. I hear you. No, I, I found that uh, compelling as well. Unfortunately, she wasn't available today to talk, but uh, Allison, you, you, you know, right, that it's it's a pro am tournament because she's a pro. She's a she's a she's a New Yorker cartoonist. No, I did not. I'm afraid she is. Oh man, no, I didn't know that. I should I should know all the New Yorker cartoonists. And she's a terrific one. But we've got no rules here about whether you're amateur or professional. And in fact, I like to ignore that line anyway. Um, we tried to get Carolita on the line, but she was unavailable because. And here's the synchronicity. Her dog was sick. But we've got some other submissions that we here at Studio 360 particularly loved. They come from the Frisch family. Andreas, Stephanie, and their daughters Lucy and Ella, all members of the Frisch family submitted doodles to the challenge. Did you like their drawings as well? I did. It was awesome that they all pitched in. The two kids, honestly, I think the kids were maybe a little better than the parents. (laughs) We're going to call the dad, actually, and and you can Uh tell him that. (laughs) So let's get him on the line. Hello? Hi, is this Andreas? Yes, speaking. Can you hear me? Yes, I can indeed. This is Kurt Anderson from Studio 360. How are you? Very good. Good to meet you. Good to meet you, too. And thank you so much for entering our contest. And I'm here, by the way, with Alison Bechtel. Oh, my God. I'm, I'm thrilled. <laughs> Hi, Andreas. <laughs> Hi. We're calling because we loved the idea of and the fact of your family's doodles. How did you guys decide to, to do this? 
Well, we we heard the program while we were in the car driving home from a weekend in Pennsylvania. And it was funny, both my daughters, uh, 10 and 7, were listening intently to the whole interview. And they said at the end, they said, Dad, can we can we do this? Can we can we enter this? It, we sometimes engage in uh, what my daughter calls a um, drawing contest that we do at home that she came up with because she loves to draw. So, <laughs> of course, she judges them herself, and she kind of ends up winning most <laughs> of the time. <laughs> Allison, among the entries of the freshers, do you have a favorite? I have to confess that my favorite is I think the ten year olds where the. Doodle Girl is pausing to take a selfie before she comes to the surface of the ocean where she's swimming. I thought that was pretty funny. And Andreas, is that the daughter who is is the drawer and and judges your contests? No, that's actually the older one. That's Lucy. She's the thinker. She's the, the what we call her the old soul. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, the little one drew some amazing like piranhas and crocodiles that I also loved. She did, yeah. She made it into an action sequence. Yeah. The older one, yeah, Lucy, she's a great critique of what's going on in her environment, and she's been criticizing the uh, culture of taking selfies. Uh-huh. <laughs> that's great. At 10. Wow, that's a precocious crit- critic. Uh, tell me about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so very much for taking the Doodle Dare as a collective act. Thanks, Andreas. <laughs> thank you very much. We really enjoyed it. It was a great experience for all of us. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye. Well, that was fun. And Allison, thank you so much for doing this, for, for doing the drawing, for judging the contest uh, with 200 <laughs> entries. It was really, really fun. It was an honor. Well, it was an honor for us and a delight. And uh, we're in your debt. So thanks. Thanks, Kurt. That's the way the doodle works. You can see all the Frisch family's doodles and the winning drawing by Carolita Johnson as well as Allison's several runners-up and all the other 200-plus doodles at Studio360.org. Thank you to everyone who sent us their work. The Dipsy Doodle is easy to find. It's almost always in the back of your mind. Coming up, the big new movie about Alan Turing that almost didn't get made. They were like, that's the worst idea for a movie we've ever heard. No one will ever make that. No one will ever see that. That is a totally unproducible film. It's career suicide. Don't write it. And that's just ahead this hour in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC. Stay with us. Studio 360 is supported by TIAA CREF, a financial services company helping to create financial outcomes that matter. Learn more at TIAA.org. And by Sotheby's Institute of Art, the Graduate School of Art and its Markets, offering master's degrees and public programs for aspiring art world professionals at their campuses in New York, Los Angeles, London, and online. Sotheby'sInstitute.com. This is Studio 360, and I am Kurt Anderson. Next weekend, The Imitation Game comes out. It's a movie starring Benedict Cumberbatch as the English mathematician Alan Turing, who cracked the code the Germans were using during World War II. You need me a lot more than I need you. I I like solving problems, Commander. And Enigma is the most difficult problem in the world. No, Enigma isn't difficult. It's impossible. Everyone thinks Enigma is unbreakable. Good. Let me try, and we'll know for sure, won't we? Historians reckon that Turing's work may have shortened the war by a couple of years and saved millions of lives. But he's still not quite a household name. 
The 2001 film Enigma, written by Tom Stoppard, left Turing out of the code-breaking story completely. But Alan Turing is now finally fully having his day. He's appeared as a character in plays, a dozen novels, even a few musicals. And now, with the imitation game, he's becoming larger than life, a kind of mythic figure in science, like Nikola Tesla or even Albert Einstein. Studio 360's Eric Malinsky has our story. Graham Moore wrote the screenplay for The Imitation Game, starring Benedict Cumberbatch as Alan Turing. But he's been obsessed with Turing since he was a kid. Among awkward, dorky teenagers without a lot of friends, like myself, Alan Turing was this object of kind of cult-like fascination. He was this kind of campfire legend. Did you know that the man who secretly invented the computer was gay and no one knows because he was persecuted by the government after the war? Sounds like a good movie. Until he tried pitching it around Hollywood. And they were like, that's the worst idea for a movie we've ever heard. No one will ever make that. No one will ever see that. That is a totally unproducible film. It's career suicide. Don't write it. But then he met a producer who had just optioned a biography of Turing. And I instantly freaked out and launched into this completely insufferable 15-minute monologue. And I could see her, like, inching away from me step by step. Like, who is this psycho and why has he invaded my kitchen and why will he not stop talking about Alan Turing? See? Told you he was obsessed. Moore did figure out a commercial angle for the film. He sold it as a World War II thriller. Turing and his team are racing against the clock to decipher the Enigma machine. It's the greatest encryption device in history, and the Germans use it for all major communications. If the Allies broke Enigma, well, (laughs) it's turned into a very short war indeed. It all goes quiet, even the click of the keys of the Enigma machine. She watches Alan unlock the tea mug. He ludicrously keeps chained to a radiator, as though someone could possibly mistake the owner for someone other than Alan, as though any of the other... Jen Eleven is an astrophysicist who wrote a novel about Turing called A Madman Dreams of Turing Machines. Turing's big insight was that Enigma was too complicated for a person to decrypt it. Even him, and he thought he was a genius. So he built something kind of dumb to crack the code. He imagined a machine like a typewriter, and that machine would read kind of a tape, and that the, the typewriter-like machine becomes hardware, and the zeros and ones, the tape that it reads in the old-fashioned language, becomes like the software. So Turing is the architect of the computer. How come this guy isn't a household name across America? Well, two reasons. His code-breaking was top secret for decades. Also, Turing had been disgraced. He was outed by an ex-lover in 1952. When he was on trial for having sex with another man, he raised his hand and he said, yes, um, I'm a homosexual, I did have sex with this man, but I did nothing wrong, it shouldn't be a crime. And at the same time that he was doing that, he never rose his hand to say, oh, and by the way, I broke the Enigma Code during the Second World War and saved 14 million lives. The judge gave him a choice. He could go to jail or take shots of estrogen, a kind of chemical castration. He chose the latter so he could keep working as a scientist. And there's another reason why Turing is such a compelling figure. Not only is he brave, truthful, and visionary, but his death is a mystery. Two years after the trial, he was found lying next to an apple laced with cyanide. The official cause of death was suicide. He did love the film Snow White. Here's Jan 11 again. And he did love to chant, Dip the the apple apple in the brew. Let the sleeping death seep through. Let the sleeping death seep through. And it was sort of 
so poetic if it's not the case that that's how he committed suicide. It sort of seems such a literary shame. But maybe not an operatic shame. David Simpatico and Justine Chen are writing an opera called The Life and Deaths of Alan Turing. They're using all the different theories about his death as a framing device to explore his life. Something that Justine pointed out early to me, because I was like, this guy's a gay hero. He's a, he, should, he should be an icon. He should be an inspiration. I said, well, he's not a gay hero. He's, he's a hero for everyone. But it's about how do you live your life, whoever you are, to the fullness that you want without threat of curtailment or imprisonment or judgment. This is from one of their workshop rehearsals. We're in Turing's home in his uh, laboratory. I see, <laughs> I see smoke. I see potions bubbling. There's a an apple that he picks up and it glistens. He's about to take this bite out of this poisoned apple. Later, we see how his death could have been an accident or government assassination, which some people in the know believe could be true. His final death is the most fanciful. Turing uploads his consciousness to a computer. And the thing about his obsession with Snow White and the apple, part of it was about the witch's transformation. In his eyes, he beca- she became transhuman because her soul went from one container, the evil queen, into the old hag. And for him, he saw that as the soul and the mind, not to be uh, imprisoned by the body, but you could put that soul and your mind and your essence in other containers. Uploading your brain to a computer, creating artificial intelligence. These are really cutting-edge ideas today. And of course, that's another reason why Turing is hot right now. I mean, it's kind of obvious. We live and breathe computers. Or as they were called in his lifetime, universal Turing machines. Steve Jobs, for example, was obsessed with Alan Turing. Graham Moore. So was Bill Gates. But, and maybe that's the interesting dichotomy of Turing, that both Jobs and Gates were hugely influenced by him. There is even a rumor that the Apple logo was an homage to Alan Turing's death. Steve Jobs denied it because it's crazy. But as time goes by, Turing does feel like a prophet. The Man from the Future, that's the title of a rock opera about Turing. 1936. In Granchester that summer, he lay in a field and dreamed of machines. It's by the Pet Shop Boys, and it was performed at the proms in London last summer. It's the contradictions in Alan Turing's life that make him so fascinating. In Britain, he was a deep insider, entrusted with many secrets. But he was also an outsider and a maverick. And that's very much how the tech world sees itself today. There is no one definitive portrait of Turing that's the right one. I think he's going to continue to be colored and transmuted by our our lenses. And over time, we just hope we get closer to a sort of honest portrayal and, and, and celebration of this person and the, and the impact that they've had on our lives. Like the fact that this story was written and edited on a universal Turing machine. For Studio 360... I'm Eric Malinsky. To understand a little more clearly what Turing had done that makes him so important, 
I wanted to speak with George Dyson. He is the author of several terrific books about technology, including Turing's Cathedral, The Origins of the Digital Universe. George Dyson was pretty much born to write about computers, in fact, to write this book. His mother, Verena Huber Dyson, is a mathematician. His sister, Esther, is a mocker in the tech industry. And his father is the famous physicist, Freeman Dyson. Freeman, an Englishman just a decade younger than Turing, knew his work when it was being published, including the pivotal 1936 paper on computable numbers with an application to the Entscheidungsproblem, whatever that means. When he did this, it was just a, a piece of interesting mathematical work. I remember my, my father says how he, you know, he read Turing's paper when it came out and had no idea it would have any practical effect on the world. Only two people asked for reprints of his paper. But it turned out that, that it was very effective. This model that, that you can represent anything by a sort of linear string of bits of ones and zeros and then do nothing more than addition and subtraction. Basically, you're doing nothing more than, than 1 plus 1 equals 2. But if you do it fast enough and often enough, what Turing proved in a strict sense was that you can then do anything. Any computable function can be done by this simple machine. So the mathematical, this basic mathematical idea of the bit, essentially, it was like discovering truly the irreducible atom on which our digital computerized world is built. Right. The best definition of a bit, I think, is still by Gregory Bateson. It's any difference that makes a difference. Any way you can distinguish between two things, that's one bit of information. If Alan Turing were still alive, and he could be, he'd be 102, and, and looking at, at what he has wrought, our digital world, what do you think would surprise him? I think if, if Turing were alive, he would be just astounded that we are still stuck in the model, this very crude model that he developed, that everybody at the time thought would be replaced by very different kinds of computing. You know, we see the same with the internet itself, which sort of, you know, once the protocols get agreed to, then you're stuck with them. You know, the main defect that it all depends on addresses, sort of the housekeeping has to be perfect, or your programs crash. And I think people like us remember when you know, you spent a good part of your day dealing with crashes, yeah. and and increasingly we don't. I mean, a lot of particularly uh, young people today, they probably don't even know what the Control Alt Delete <laughs> key, you know, which is, is sort of how you try and reset your system when it's crashed. And so it's amazing how well we have sort of evolved software that basically monitors its own health and does its sort of own error correction and, and avoids crash. But it still is a very brittle system that only, this only works because armies of people are, are in the background perfecting the code and dealing with the bugs and, and so on. So right. it's very, very laborious. Turing's Cathedral is actually mostly about John von Neumann, the mathematician at Princeton in the 1950s, around the same time your dad was there. How did von Neumann contribute to the evolution of the computer as it's come to be? Turing had given us this wonderful one-dimensional model where you run this tape, and, and some of the early computers ran on tapes. So what von Neumann did was make, made it two-dimensional. He took Alan Turing's tape and made it more into a matrix like a chessboard, so you could get to any point in memory instantly at, at the speed of light rather than 
sort of at the speed of sound, which was what limited a, a linear memory. Huh. And, and he did that working for the military in the early 1950s to write programs that would help the United States wage nuclear war? Von Neumann really made – explicitly made a deal with the devil on this thing. I mean he – he wanted the computer. He really, really wanted it. He would do anything to get a computer, and not just for himself, but for science as a whole. So the, the deal was that the scientists got the computer, and they could do whatever they wanted with it, and the military, would, you know, the devil would get the hydrogen bomb, which was the, the most destructive, awful thing that had ever been invented. And we think that everything worked out fine, because we've, we've never had a thermonuclear war. Maybe... The devil didn't want the hydrogen bomb. Maybe the devil, you know, wanted the computer. And that's our job is to make sure that this wonderful tool, which can do all these great, wonderful things, can also, I mean, as we sort of have little glimpses of it, can be a, a real tool for if we ever had a, a new Stalin or a new Hitler or one of these dictatorships, the computer, particularly the sort of socially networked computer, is, is the ultimate tool for, for doing evil. And, and that's, that's something to keep in mind. Because it's, it's odd how Alan Turing is the, you know, he's the patron saint of the NSA, of the spies and the spooks, and yet he's also the hero of the anti, you know, the computer liberation yeah. side. Everybody loves Turing. And but what's your hunch about Turing's feeling about the Edward Snowden versus the generals and admirals who run the NSA? Well, I think he would be very much on the side of openness and that the NSA had gone too far. But on the other hand, I think if he had been in Snowden's position, he would never have revealed anything. I mean, he, you know, Turing went to his death with all sorts of secrets, yep. embarrassing ones. and and But again, he was British and in Britain... You know, he worked for GCHQ and he, and he worked for the king. And even Edward Snowden was not really in the government service. He was in this sort of quasi-outside contractor business. And I think that's where the real vulnerability was. Turing, in 1951, wrote an essay that people should read because it's still sort of interestingly prescient 60 years later called The Imitation Game. Uh, and and scientists and Computer nerds still play this game, which they call the Turing test, which is to say writing software that will make a machine fool humans that it is human. Do you think that is in this day and age a good use of time and energy and resources? It's a game and it's only a very small part of, of that particular paper of Turing's, which was which was 1950. And, and I believe – personally, I, I believe it's completely wrong that that a real AI, a real artificial intelligence would would be intelligent enough not to reveal itself. It would intentionally not reveal that it was genuinely intelligent. George Dyson, thank you very much. Okay. George Dyson is the author of Turing's Cathedral. But since he wasn't actually in the studio when we spoke – that could have been a really good computer simulation of George Dyson. Coming up, would you take cat training advice from one of the most important figures in jazz? Start moving the box towards the bathroom. Do it gradually. You got to get him thinking. 
That's still ahead this hour in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC. Stay with us. Studio 360 is supported by Sacred Heart University's Film and Television Master's Program, a one-year graduate conservatory devoted to cinematic storytelling and hands-on production, located just outside New York City in Stamford, Connecticut. Applications are being accepted for next fall. Learn more at ftma.sacredheart.edu. And by TIAA CREF, a financial services company helping to create financial outcomes that matter. Learn more at TIAA.org. And by Lumosity.com, introducing a 10-minute fit test to challenge memory, attention, and problem solving with brain games to calculate baseline scores and build a personalized brain training program. Performance can be compared to global averages. Learn more at Lumosity.com. This is Studio 360, and I am Kurt Anderson. Hi, John Fitzgerald Kennedy. You solemnly swear that you will faithfully execute the... Back in the early 1960s, John F. Kennedy had just become president. And the age of the LP record album had also really just begun as well. I was always, baby, I was always... Alongside Broadway musicals and folk music and Elvis, the comedy record was coming into its own as well. And I've seen a lot of saucer people, and uh, but I can't talk about it, you know, because back in the zoo. By 1962, Jonathan Winters had put out four records and Bob Newhart had two hit albums. But the 1963 Album of the Year Grammy went to some total unknowns, performing a new kind of political parody. It was called The First Family. As part of our series, Inside the National Recording Registry, we got the story from a comedy historian. I'm Ronald L. Smith. I'm the author of Comedy on Record, as well as Who's Who in Comedy. As well as the man who co-wrote and produced the 1962 album. I'm Bob Booker. I'm a TV producer, album producer, writer, director, editor. Spent my life in the entertainment world. At that time, no one actually had done what people believed was this outrageous idea of making fun of the president and his family. We took this attitude. We thought that Jack Kennedy was a movie star president. He had this tremendous sense of humor. He was young. He had the beautiful wife, two children. We did a demo of the album to sell it, you know, recorded about 15 minutes of it. And we shopped it around New York, and uh, we were thrown out of 12 of the major record companies. One actually threatened us to get out. And the big labels like Columbia and Capital and RCA, they were just too involved with the government to ever insult the President of the United States, and they thought this would be insulting. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm speaking to you from a typical American home in Hyannisport, Massachusetts. Since January of 1960, this family of smiling and happy people have undergone a change. You might say they've been engaged in a new and different type of experiment. Sir, as head of this average family, what was this new experience undergone by you and the members of your household? Well, after uh, two years of brushing with the crest toothpaste, our group... Our group had uh, 21% fewer cavities with crest. Actually, what we were looking to do, I guess, was what would be an old-fashioned radio show. We had a cast of people, and we did sketches. 
And strangely enough, Vaughn Meter looked a little bit like Jack Kennedy. Uh, Naomi Brassard, who played Jackie, was, I mean, she really looks like her. And she did the best impression of Jackie Kennedy ever. Now, if you'd care to follow me down this hall to the next room, as we go, I should like to point out the various paintings on the wall. Yes, I wish you would point them out. Well, there's this one. And this one. <laughs> and that great big one over there. The First Family was the fastest rising album ever. Fastest rising album of all time. A million copies sold within one month. It was this incredible phenomenon of uh, a small record label nobody knew, a comedian that nobody had ever heard of, a comedy writing team nobody had ever heard of. It didn't succeed that much as a political satire album. It succeeded as just a funny album of uh, little sketches. Now down onto the floor for this week's press conference. Yes, well, there is no opening statement. I think I will just take the uh, first question. Sir, we understand that on-the-spot nuclear inspection might not be necessary. Do you have a new way that we can tell what the Russians are doing without actual on-the-spot inspection in the Soviet Union? Yes, we are asking everyone to uh, be very, very quiet. (laughs) One thing that is part of this uh, perfect storm about the first family is that it hit on so many levels, and one of them was simply the Boston accent. Nobody had heard a Boston accent uh, before. All of a sudden, you have this guy with this voice and this cadence, and it was considered really hilarious going back to the old school of Parkia Carcass and uh, ethnic uh, Jewish uh, and, and Irish voices. A lot of the humor on the First Family was just purely in the cadence of uh, John F. Kennedy's voice. Good evening, my fellow citizens. This government has promised... And while they were making this record, the Cuban Missile Crisis arose. ...of the Soviet military buildup on the island of Cuba. The Cuban Crisis was in October of 1962, the exact night we were recording the album. Thank God the audience waiting to hear this comedy album recorded uh, hadn't heard it. But 30 minutes later, we recorded the album. So here is Kennedy at 7 o'clock saying we're about to go to war, and here we are at 7.30 doing jokes about the first family. Family, family, family. Jack, there's just too much family. Can't we ever get away alone? Tomorrow. I I promise tomorrow we'll go away together uh, tomorrow. No more family for a while. Now, I promise. Now, uh, turn off the light. Good night, Jackie. Good night, Jack. Night, Bobby. Night, Ethel. First Family reinvented the idea of sketch comedy, audio sketch comedy. You know, I think uh, think we're all bozos on this bus. Fireside Theater, Credibility Gap, and Congress of Wonders, Cheech and Chong even. They all ran with it. And uh, there were albums that you just purely listened to. There was sound effects going on. There were interesting voices going on. That all came from the first family. The following is a public service announcement. Election day is near. Go to the polls and vote. Vote for the Kennedy of your choice, but vote. (laughs) 
It's kind of sad in a way that the album had a sequel to it, which did not get a lot of airplay. There was First Family Volume 2, and unfortunately, not too long after that, the assassination of President Kennedy happened, and the second album disappeared. My secretary called and said, Kennedy's been shot. I said, I want the uh, album. Well, there were two albums at that time. We'd done a follow-up. But I said, take them both off the market right now, and I want them chopped up. I do not want to sit and try to cash in on this tragedy. It became a collector's album because there were so few copies of it that anybody could find. I had a conversation with Caroline Kennedy about a year ago, and she was very anxious to have the masters of these albums in the Kennedy Library in Boston. That's the greatest compliment that we could ever receive for this album. Sir? Yes? When will we send a man to the moon? Whenever uh, Shannon to Goldwater wants to go. <laughs> that was Ron Smith and Bob Booker talking about the comedy album The First Family. That LP, as we used to call records, was selected to be preserved in the National Recording Registry. Our story was produced by Ben Manila for BMP Audio. That period, the late 50s, early 60s, was a hugely influential moment for comedy and also for jazz. Along with groundbreaking albums by Miles Davis and John Coltrane, it was also the high-water mark for the bass player Charles Mingus, who had emerged as one of the most important jazz composers. Mingus had played bass on a record called The Greatest Jazz Concert Ever, along with Dizzy Gillespie, Charlie Parker, Bud Powell, and Max Roach. But around the time that came out, Mingus was working on another masterpiece of sorts, one that doesn't get nearly enough credit. Jody Avergan explains. We know this masterpiece exists because of a photograph. Charles Mingus likely took it himself sometime in 1953 or early 54. It's a photo of his cat. There it is, jet black with a white belly and chin, and he's perched on the side of a toilet bowl. He's got his tail in the air and a look of content concentration on his face. It's a look that's best described as the kind of look a cat would have when taking a dump into Charles Mingus's toilet. The photo is on the cover of a small pamphlet, which you could order directly from him by mail, called The Charles Mingus Catalog for Toilet Training Your Cat. Step 1. You must train your cat to use a homemade cardboard litter box. Start moving the box towards the bathroom. Do it gradually. You got to get him thinking. Then you put the box on top of the toilet. Mingus gets extremely detailed. Cut a small hole in the very center of his box, less than an apple, about the size of a plum. Right away, he will start aiming for the hole. It goes on and on like this. And after a week or two, you will realize that you have won. The most difficult part is over. Mingus concludes with some crucial advice. The main thing to remember is not to rush or confuse it. Good luck, Charles Mingus, 1954. Yeah. 
In 2014, in a two-bedroom apartment in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, we're putting the Mingus method to the test. Hi. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. So who is this? This is Dizzy. Dizzy? Dizzy's a five and a half month old kitten. We're going to train this cat to use the toilet. Licking the microphone. (laughs) Dizzy is that perfect mix of trusting and playful and super cute. And his owners, Kevin and Nicole, are going above and beyond. We have been playing a lot of Charles Mingus for him. Awesome. I asked Mingus biographer Gene Santoro about that. What song would he play for the cat? You know, to get him in the mood. If you put on something like Better Get It In Your Soul, the cat's likely to not be too happy because it's raucous. You might want to listen to Farwell's Mill Valley. It's a very, very beautiful piece. As you flip through the catalog, you can interpret it in two ways. One, it's the work of a crazy musician stuck in his railroad apartment. When I listen to Mingus's music, sometimes I think of it as sort of a map to his fevered mind. The pamphlet, it reads the same way. But it also tells a second story, that of a creative mind in overdrive. That nagging urge that led to his cat training obsession is the same thing that drove his musical genius. There isn't a disconnect. He was doing jazz, so there was improvisation involved. But when he was writing the music for, like, the heads and the themes and things like that, he was attempting to notate down to the breath control exactly what each note in those themes would be for every instrumentalist. And this is the period we're talking about where this gets generated. It's that same sort of, like, step by step, I'm going to take you through this, and then you're on your own. Do you have cats? I inherited a cat from my daughter when she left home, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> does it use the toilet? Uh, it does not, no. It strikes me as a longtime cat cohabitor or whatever I am that it actually makes sense in terms of the cat's psychology. Everything is very gradual. You know, it's not a dog. You can't hurt it. <laughs> <laughs> this project, do you think he thought he would make money? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's why he was selling it. He'd talk about it after gigs with people or stuff like that. Imagine that moment, a smoky jazz club, 1954. You go up to chat with the legendary bass player. You want an autograph or maybe a little musical advice. But before you know it, he steers the conversation towards getting you to buy his pamphlet about toilet training a cat. A couple weeks into the Dizzy experiment, I check in with Kevin and Nicole. They're still on step one. Yeah, we woke up this morning to a surprise on the bath mat. And then a few days ago, he just sort of missed the box. You know, there's an easier way to do this. On the internet, you can buy a kit. And it's basically a modern version of the Mingus method. But Kevin and Nicole are following the catalog. Cardboard box, newspaper litter... Patience and time. It took me about three or four weeks to toilet train my cat. Nightlife. Um, it's a little bit of a hassle. It just requires a little bit of undoing the bungee cords and moving things around and newspaper flying everywhere in the bathroom. Do it gradually. He's so cute, so it's worth it. Mr. Mingus, what do you think of this eviction today? I think America is beautiful. 
As the 50s moved into the 60s, Charles Mingus's life began to fall apart. There's this documentary from the time, which shows him being evicted from his apartment. Charlie, do you think you're being persecuted because you're a jazz musician? No, I think I'm really being helped. I really think I'm being helped. In what way? I don't know. I think that uh, maybe people get to see what's going on. His belongings are all over the sidewalk. He's walking down the stairs, holding a shotgun, babbling erratically. His whole scene had collapsed musically. He was doing a lot of pills. Later in life, Santoro says his children, visiting their father in Los Angeles, discovered a collection of bottles filled with urine. He told them, I think, at different points that these were like experiments he was doing, but he was out of it. Mingus wrote some of the greatest jazz of the century, but he never really made any money off of it. Suffice it to say, he never made any money from the catalog either. It's been three months since I first met Dizzy, so I called to check in on the progress. So, <laughs> do you have bad news for me? Bad news for you in that um, the, the Mingus potty training method was, was a failure, unfortunately. Um, Dizzy never really got used to the idea of using the laptop box with newspaper in it. He just like, was not into it. So we actually sprung for like, uh, I don't know, can I say brand names? Is that or am I like endorsing them? Then I don't know. So like, say it. City Kitty, City Kitty is a, is the brand. There, I said it. Okay. Uh, yeah, I feel a little bit like a sellout, but uh, he had trouble. He had trouble being on target. Well, look, you know, I don't think you're dishonoring the legacy of Charles Mingus or anything. I just think that your cat is not feeling it. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. All of public radio listening America is pulling for Dizzy to pull it off <laughs> one way or another. Well, good. Yeah, I hope so. We certainly are. Mingus was on to something. There's certainly a benefit to it, both spiritually and logistically in the household. And you're not going to throw out any of your Mingus records or anything? No, no, not at all. If anything, it has only, it has only furthered my love of the man and his music. For Studio 360, I'm Jody Avergan. Mingus's catalog was read for us by the actor Reg E. Cathy who you might recognize from The Wire and House of Cards. At Studio360.org, we've got a link to Mingus's pamphlet and a very funny video of Reg Cathy reading it. And have any of you successfully trained your cat using the Charles Mingus method? If so, let us know in a comment on our website, and please send us a picture. That's it for this hour of Studio 360. Thank you very much for listening. And until next week's show, you can check out the news stories that we have every day on our blog at studio360.org slash sideshow. Our production team includes Ital Malad, David Krasnow, Jenny Lawton, John Delore, Sean Ramosferum, Matt Frasica, Eric Malinsky, Julia Lowry Henderson, Krista Ripple, Zoe Azule, Amira Nader, Scott Ross. Thanks as always to WNYC's Chris Bannon. Our theme music's by David Van Tegum. Studio 360 is supported in part by the SC Group, whose charitable resources include FJC, a foundation of donor-advised funds at fjc.org. Studio 360's series on creativity and science is supported in part by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science and technology in the modern world. More information is online at sloan.org. PRI Public Radio International 
Next time in Studio 360... I believe we do things that really are magic and defy explanation. We're going someplace magical. I always thought Disneyland was like going to heaven. The Disney theme parks. Next time in Studio 360's American Icons from PRI and WNYC.